I wonder if you could have uh, Romans 8 uh, open, uh, Romans 8, starting at verse 18. There's an item on the BBC uh, News this week, actually, that reminded me of a visit I did in October 2006. It was the same flats above the same shops in Preston. Uh, the item on the news was about a man who committed murder. He'd killed another man. He'd been released, and he was setting up a youth club in Preston to try and help lads like him. I'd been to the flats 10 years later to visit a family, the Woods family. There's Pauline the mum, Dave, Caroline, Emma, uh, the kids. I'd gone because their dad, David, had been murdered about a week before, October the 13th. He'd been killed outside a nightclub in Preston. And I was going there to see them because I was conducting his funeral a week later. Now, what do you say in a situation like that? What do you say to people when you're faced with that sort of situation? Well, uh, I knew what I had to say. It's not that I'm very wise. (laughs) Most of you know I'm not very sensitive but it's that I believe what the Bible says is true. And the Bible says most wonderfully that this world will not continue like it is forever. This world is not going to go on like this forever. There will be a day when Jesus will return to judge every man, woman, and child who has ever lived. So so young people, that's the only exam that really counts. On that day, we will all stand before Jesus Christ. And every crime will receive its due punishment. And there'll be a new world where there's no more murder, where there's no more theft or bullying or hatred or lying or anger or adultery or selfishness or unkindness of any sort. And God will take perfect people and he'll put them into his perfect new world. What a day. But, but of course, that's where the problem starts, isn't it? Because if you've been in Romans with us, in chapters 1 to 3, we saw we're not perfect people. In fact, no one is perfect. We all fall short of God's standards. We don't deserve to go to a perfect new world. We deserve his punishment for the way we've failed to love him and other people. But wonderfully, Paul writes in Romans chapter 3 and then Romans chapter 4 that God has done something extraordinary for us in His Son, the Lord Jesus. That God treats us as though we are perfect if we have faith in Jesus Christ. He does that because at the cross, the precious Son of God had poured upon Him all of our failure and sin, all of our guilt, all of our imperfection. And he died to take the punishment for us. And the result is that we now are given his perfect life. So in the, if you like, in the bank of the Christian, that the statement reads, full to the brim, credited with the perfect life of Jesus. And so those who trust in Jesus know that their future is forever in a perfect new world with him. And all we've got to do is wait. Waiting's hard, isn't it? We're not very good at waiting. Whether it's waiting in the traffic jam or waiting in the the shopping queue or just waiting for our birthday to turn up or, or Christmas, we're not very good at waiting, waiting for this talk to end. It's hard work. And Romans 8 is all about that normal Christian life of waiting. And it's a normal life. It's a life with cancer and job loss. It's a life where you get bullied in the school playground, and it's a life where relationships are hard work. 
but it's a life lived, we saw last week, between chapter 8, verse 1. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God condemns no one who trusts in Jesus. And Romans 8, 39, which tells us there is no separation from the love of God for those who are in Christ Jesus. Nothing can rip us away from God's love. But in between, there's a hard life. There's a life of a lot of groaning. Uh, you see, life being a child of God is not necessarily an easy life. That, that verse that John put up, Romans 8, verse 17. Now if we're children, then we're heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If, if we may share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Oh, there's a, a glorious future, a, a wonderful, perfected new world. We're going to reign over it with Jesus. Do you know that? That's why in Narnia, you're a king or queen of Narnia. If you're a, a son or of Adam or a daughter of Eve, we're going to reign forever with Jesus over a perfect new world. But Romans 8, 18 to 30 seem to talk about suffering in this world in general. And then Romans 8, 31 to 39 seem to focus specifically on suffering because you follow Jesus. So how do we keep going, waiting, in a world where there's so much pain? Do you see what Paul says in verse 18? I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Oh, oh it's only a little bit of time to wait Compared to forever, now is only a short time. Compared to the glorious, beautiful, perfect future to come, your pain now is only small. Oh, great, Paul. Well, that, that's, that's fantastic. I'm glad there's some light at the end of the tunnel. But I need to understand what I'm going through now more. How do I keep going now? And so Paul says, firstly, we wait with the rest of creation. We wait with the rest of creation. Look at verse 19 with me. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. See, the whole universe is waiting with bated breath for that day when Christians will be made perfect. When people will see who the children of God are. And why is it waiting? Well, verse 20. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope. You see, Adam and Eve, when they rebelled against God in the Garden of Eden, God not only punished them, He cursed the whole of creation. He, he took the perfect world and He spoilt it. That's why there's death and decay. That's why we have doctors and hospitals. The world we live in is now hostile to humanity. Yeah, there's beautiful sunshine out there, but the world don't work. It's why there are brambles in your garden. It's why there are earthquakes that bring cities crashing to the ground. You see, if we believe in a, a good God who's in charge of the whole of creation, either he's doing a very bad job or he has deliberately broken the machine. You see, creation is, is a bit like a, a broken shopping trolley. You ever, you ever mean that? You mean to little, and you know you've, you've got the trolley, and you start to push it, and it shoots off to the left. And you spend all your time struggling to keep it away from the shelves or, or from other passing shoppers. It sort of works. It'll do the job, but, but it's, it's really hard work. Well, that's what God has done to creation. But he's done it for a very good reason. Did you see the last two words in verse 20? They're beautiful words. He's done it in 
hope. All the death and decay we see around us, all the aches and pains when you get up in the morning, all the grazes to your knee when you trip over on the, on the irritating walk with your parents, they're all there to make us look forward to the future. God has spoilt creation so that we understand that our relationship with him is spoilt and we want to find out more. We want a restored relationship with the God who's made us. I remember going out for a, a dinner, quite a posh dinner, sitting around a table with some people I didn't know. And I got chatting on the table, as you do if you're in my business, about what you believe. And I was talking to a guy who told me his brother-in-law had died in a car accident the, far, the year before. And he said, look, I'm an atheist. I don't believe in God. He was an atheist. How can there be a God who could love us if things like that could happen? That's what he said to me. He said, it's not fair. Surely that's not fair. To which the answer, of course, is, no, it's not fair if this world is all there is. But this world is not all there is. So Paul says in verse 21, that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. One day, one day in the future soon, all that slavery to decay and death will be de- de- changed into to freedom to live in a perfect new world, in perfect relationship with the physical creation, in perfect relationship with every other human being, in perfect relationship, most importantly, with the God who made us. All that has happened because Jesus has died to take the curse of creation upon himself, and he's risen to new life, so that all those who trust in him have a new life in relationship with God. And so Paul says that the Christians are a little bit like seeds, seeds sown into creation to show there's something better to come. So so when Christians are raised from the dead, when Jesus comes back, that's what the Bible says will happen, the whole of creation will be renewed. We're like the first fruits, the seeds that come up in the springtime, like the snowdrops you see at the moment in, in the hedgerows. They tell you spring is coming. So as Christians are raised from the dead to be with Jesus, it'll be the day that the whole of creation is renewed. What if you realize that? The Bible doesn't teach us that heaven is some sort of um, life on a cloud or some spiritual existence out there in the nothingness. The future for every human being who trusts in Jesus Christ is this solid world. I'll do that every two minutes. It has a wonderful reaction. Do I need to recap for any of you? This solid world perfected. It's why if you take... Uh, the most precious time in your life or the most delicious meal you've eaten or the most wonderful experience of love you've had and you uh, increase that by infinity and you extend it into eternity, you have a real taste of what it'll be like to live forever in God's perfect new creation. And you'll be able to wander home through the streets at Lambeth at three o'clock in the morning without a care in the world. The headlines of the newspaper every day will be, world worked perfectly, nothing went wrong. 
Every relationship you have will be, always be loving and, and caring. And you will never put your foot in your mouth. You'll always say the perfect, encouraging thing to one another. Every plant you put in your garden will grow perfectly. We can give up on e-numbers because nothing will ever decay again. A perfect world. That's what is going to be the future. And so Paul says in verse 22, we know the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Just like a woman before she's going to have a a baby has labor pains and they're a wonderful sign of the the new life that's about to arrive, the baby. So, So Paul pictures the whole of creation groaning, aching, longing, looking at Christians, thinking that's a wonderful sign that one day I'll be restored to perfection. I'll be the way that, that I always should be. You see, we're the early warning signs to the whole of the world that there's a better life to come forever. We wait with the rest of creation. We wait with, with certain hope. Look at verse 23. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we eagerly await for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. You see, when you start to follow Jesus, God sends his Holy Spirit into our hearts. And the result is, he works in us, so we want to walk like Jesus, and talk like Jesus, and be like Jesus. And we want to be with Jesus. We long for that day when we'll fully experience what it is to be a child of God. When we'll be loved and know that love. When we'll love others even as God has loved us. When we'll have perfect bodies that don't decay anymore. I've been longing for that day a little bit more during the, uh, the recent weeks. That's not just because I went to see the doctor recently and she told me that if while I was running I got chest pains, felt dizzy or was short of breath, I should stop. I told her that's the way I feel all the time when I'm running. All the time I have chest pains, feel dizzy and I'm short of breath. But, but, but it wasn't just that. Now, I've been longing for that day because I don't know if you've had these periods where you just keep hearing of dreadful tragedy and suffering from friends, from family. You know, week by week it seems to mount up. Sometimes it mounts up in some families' lives more than others. You think, what on earth has it happened to them again for? Why them, Lord? And you think, wouldn't it be great to have a day when, when you never heard of that anymore? When, when life was without that sort of news coming over Facebook. You see, if this life is all there is, I might as well give up on my job now. But this life is not all there is. And so Paul says in verse 24, For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. For who hopes in what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. You don't hope for what you have, do you? You don't think, oh, I wish I had a new car when you're sitting in your new car. You don't hope that I wish I had a new phone when you've got your new phone in your hand. No, you're looking forward to something better to come. And Paul says, there is so much more that we don't have. That's our hope. And hope in the Bible, it's not something that might happen in the future, you know, if we get lucky. Now, hope in the Bible is the sure and certain promise of God for what he is going to do for us in the future. 
Uh, that hope is written into history. Why do we know we'll be raised to be in a, a perfect new world? Because we look back and Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, a human being with a body that will last forever. And we know we'll be like him. I remember visiting my Uncle John in hospital. Uncle John was quite a, a big man, but um, he was dying of prostate cancer. And uh, he'd lost all the weight, and he was sitting on a, on a chair. You, you, if you visited people in, in hospital when, when they're really, really ill, they don't really sit. They're, they're sort of slumped in the chair, aren't they? The chair is holding them up. And he didn't have long to live. He was, he was in pain every day. And um, in that slightly tactless way, I said, John, how, how do you cope with the pain every day? And Uncle John knew the Lord Jesus, and he said this, something I'll never forget. He said, the journey is difficult and unknown, but the destination is glorious and certain. The journey is difficult and unknown. Parents, our kids need to know that. You need to know that if you're raising children. You cannot keep your kids from cancer. You cannot ensure your kids achieve well at school. You cannot make every decision for them. And frankly, that's good news. A lot of the time, I wish my kids were on remote control and I had a joystick. It would be a disaster for them. You cannot raise your kids. The journey will always be difficult and unknown in this world. The question is, do they know the destination that is glorious and certain? You see, without the Lord Jesus Christ, the destination is certain, but it is dreadful. It is facing God's forever punishment. But with the Lord Jesus Christ, the destination is certain and glorious. It is this world perfected forever with a perfect new body. And that's what helps us to wait patiently now, that we have that certain hope. But, but the great thing is, do you know what? We don't wait in our own strength? No, we wait, thirdly, with the Spirit's help. You see, you see when we're, we're, we're suffering, sometimes we just don't know what to pray. Or we don't know whether we should, should cry out for the suffering to end. But then when the suffering seems to go on and on and on, and we've, we've asked God for it to end and end and end, we, we think, well, there's no point in doing that. Or we feel like having a go at God, but, but we think that must be disrespectful and wrong. Or sometimes we, we just feel so low, we can't pray. Maybe the pain is too great. Maybe the darkness of depression is too heavy for us to lift our thoughts to heaven. But, but do you know the great news of what Paul says in verse 26? In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. You see, God's Spirit, who, who the Father and Son are bound together within eternity, the one who, who they know perfectly, he, he lives within us. He's the presence of the Father, our Father in heaven with us. He's the presence of Jesus, the Son, our loving shepherd who died for us. He's God with you. Now, do you think that the God who is with you is totally going to stand by idly and watch while his children suffer. And of course he's not. But Paul says he groans. 
He groans just as the whole of creation is groaning, just as we are groaning. You see, it's not just us or or the world around us who longs for the pain to stop. It's God himself who longs for the suffering to end in the world. And his spirit is crying out on your behalf. No words might be coming from your mouth in your suffering and pain. But your needs are taken to the throne room of your loving Heavenly Father by His Spirit who dwells within you. And frankly, He's the best person for the job. Look at verse 27. And He who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. See, God's Spirit is is in our hearts. He, He knows what you're feeling. He knows what you're longing. He knows how you're hurting. And he's asking God the Father for just what you need. Because he's doing it in accordance with God's will. People can get chest pains for all sorts of different reasons. Indigestion, stress. But sometimes it can be from serious heart issues. What we want is to go to the doctor and for them to be able to tell the difference. And what they do for that is is that they fit us with a, with a monitor, 24-hour heart monitor, to tell whether it's actually just a bit of uh, indigestion and we're panicking or whether we've got a real issue. The problem is when they fit a 24-hour heart monitor, sadly, it doesn't make your body look like this. I wish it did, but it doesn't. And what it does is it, it actually measures what's going on inside you over, over a day so, so they can tell whether there is a problem with you on the inside. They get an accurate reading of exactly what's going on in your heart. What, what, what Paul is saying is... In the midst of living in a suffering world, what what the Lord does is he has his spirit in our hearts and he knows exactly what's wrong with us. He knows exactly what we need. He's got an accurate picture of you and he's working in your life. You see, God doesn't just have a, a diagnosis. He actually gives us exactly the right cure as well. But, but, that cure, in the end, it's not to take away our suffering. No, no, God's got a far greater purpose. He's going to make us like Jesus. He's going to make us like Jesus. Can you imagine that? He's going to make you like Jesus. Because here's the last thing. We wait as God makes us more like Jesus. We wait as God makes us more like Jesus. Now, the last couple of verses we had read this morning, you'll either see them as a treasure trove or a minefield. Verse 28 is one of the most quoted verses in the Bible, Romans 8, 28. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. They're great words of reassurance, aren't they? Everything that is going on in your life is God working good. They're not words to give someone who's, who's just in the midst of suffering. You don't tell someone who's been recently bereaved, oh, don't worry, God's working for your good. But, but they are words that provide a, a framework for the life that we live. That God is in control of all of it. And even through the evil and the pain and the difficulty, he, he's working out good. But that good has, a, has a, a specific definition. It's not good as I might think I want it. It's not necessarily the good and ease of comfort that I want day to day. Look, good is defined by verse 29. Verse 29, for those God foreknew, he also be predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. 
To be predestined means that God has decided to do this before the creation of the world and he's acting it out in your life. And here, there's an amazing thing. Paul is outlining God's plan for his people in the whole of eternity. He's giving us a a window onto the mind of God. And it's a plan we've got to cling to in the midst of our suffering. Because there's no doubt from the beginning, and there's, there's no doubt about the middle, and there's no doubt about the end. Before the creation of time, God set his love on us. If you're here as a Christian, he foreknew you. That doesn't mean he just knew about you. It means he decided to have a special relationship with you. Why? Because he wanted to. Then he set about ordering the whole of history to make you more like Jesus. So that the new creation, that perfect new world, would be filled with perfect people like Jesus. Brothers and sisters of Jesus. And that's what God is doing through every experience of our life day by day. Making us more like Jesus. And Paul gives us the, if you like, basic building blocks of of that process in, in verse 30. Verse 30. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. He, He predestined Christians. He decided to bring them to follow Jesus. Then then he called them. That meant they heard the gospel, the good news about Jesus, and he brought them to believe it. And when they believed it, they were justified. We've seen that in Romans. Though they're guilty, they were declared innocent, just as if I'd never sinned through Jesus' death at the cross. That means they'll have a perfect future. They will be glorified. You, you look down at verse 30, is that what it says? No, it doesn't say that. It says, have glorified. Past tense, he also glorified. Well, why is that in the past tense as well? If it's talking about the future. A little technical term, it's what they call a prophetic past. When God says something and promises it, it's so certain you can talk about it as though it's already happened. So Paul says, it's as though you're already glorified. It's so certain it's going to happen. Now, Paul says these things to Christians in Rome. In his day, they were suffering. And he says, look, your suffering's not pointless. Whatever you're going through at the moment, however helpless you feel, however much you you think that that this is a desperate situation, God says to you, I want you to know it's never pointless. It's never pointless. It's never mindless. It's not that I've lost control on your life. However much you, you feel you might be getting worse as a person, not better. However much you can't see how this is doing any good to anyone, let alone you, God says it's not pointless. You know, I'm utterly in control. I'm utterly on your side. I am working the best out for you. Trust me. There are, there are lots of, um, you know, poor boy or girl come good stories, aren't there? It's sort of the classic Hollywood storyline, you know. Christoph from Frozen gets to marry the princess, Anna. 
Eliza Doolittle from My Fair Lady Comes Good, Wart from Sword in the Stone, you know, Poe from Kung Fu Panda, Cinderella from Cinderella, Sophie and the BFG. They're all start small and poor, come good stories. But, but in all of those things, there's something about them that makes them better. They're either, they're either braver or they're more beautiful or they're more intelligent or they're secretly a prince or they're just better at kung fu. They, they have to be something better inside them to come good. In fact, in one way, that was the problem with John's kid's talk. Do you spot the problem with John's kid's talk? He's big enough to take this. Whether you're having a diet or whether you're running a, 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 for a marathon, it's all about you. In the end, you've got to work hard and suffer to get something better. But that's not what Romans 8 is saying. Romans 8 is saying you're part of a world where there's suffering. That there will be pain and struggle in this life. You are not immune from it if you're a Christian. But the difference is this. God says, I've got it. I've got this. In fact, he says, I've got you. I've got you. It's okay. I've got you. This isn't going to go on forever. It's not going to go on forever. And I've set my love on you. Because I've set my love on you. And you're my precious child. And I'm going to make you like Jesus. I'm going to take you forever to, to live in a perfected new world. And do you know why? It's because I am, says God. That's my plan for your life. And when you look back on life in 10,000 years' time, and you've lived in a, a perfect new world for, for that long, and you're enjoying a perfect relationship with God, your Father through His Son, Jesus, you might just see how He used today to make you a little bit more like Him. Because He wants the best for you. Because He loves you very very much. We're waiting. We're waiting with the rest of creation. We're waiting in certain hope. We're waiting with the Spirit's help. We're waiting as we're made more like Jesus. Because God loves us very much. And when we end Romans 8 next week, we'll see how enormous that love is. Let's pray together.